Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney. Uh, today on the podcast we're doing things a little differently. It's Best of British Week. Huzzah, pip, pip, God save the Queen. In it as we look back at two of the best performances in British rings in recent times. Joe Calzaghi's dominant win over Jeff Lacey and Ricky Hatton's termination of the career of Costa Zoo. And to discuss that, we're actually handing over most of the podcast to our guests, a very good friend of both of us, uh, Gareth A. Davis of The Telegraph. Um, Interestingly, Gareth recently posted a story just the other day uh, confirming reporting by Mike Coppinger of The Athletic that Bob Arum is expected to announce any day soon that Top Rank will be hosting its first behind-closed-doors post-lockdown boxing card on June 9th in a ballroom at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas. Now, Eric, a few weeks ago, you offered June 15th as an over-under on when behind-closed-doors boxing may return, and I not only took the over, I I snickered a little bit, frankly. (laughs) Just a week bit. Although and you did, you, you did say uh, that I, that it was close. You weren't like overwhelmingly, boy, that's way no. off in your defense. No, but there was there was a there was an element of condescension. Sure, take sure. as as there often is. Yes, <laughs> indeed. Um, but not only that, you offered as an example of the kind of card you were thinking about when you proposed this over under a Shakur Stevenson level main event. Lo and behold, according to Carpenter, the main event uh, under consideration will not just be a Shakur Stevenson level one, but will actually feature Shakur Stevenson. Um, Eric, knowing you, I imagine you're feeling insufferably smug about all of this. <laughs> but in all seriousness, this does actually merit a lap of honor, albeit a socially distanced indoor metaphorical lap of honor. <laughs> I will I will take that lap. And uh, yeah, I couldn't imagine what would make you think I could possibly be feeling insufferably <laughs> smug. Maybe it's uh, because I retweeted my poll on this topic the other day and demanded that people give me credit for breaking the news three weeks before anyone else that it would be Shakur Stevenson on June 9th. Uh, June 9th, by the way, is a Tuesday. Uh, so that's interesting right there. We we might get the midweek fights that we kind of started calling for at the very beginning of this. I, I believe we talked about it with Steven Espinoza, uh, that maybe boxing can move off its Friday and Saturday only schedule and get creative and take advantage of the fact that people are home seven nights a week and craving sports seven nights a week. Um, but anyway, uh, yes, I am a genius. I can see the future. I know what Bob Arum is going to do before Bob knows what he's going to do. But look, look this this timeline makes sense in light of the UFC seemingly pulling it off successfully. As you and I have said, we don't know UFC was successful until about the end of May when we see if anyone associated with these UFC cards has spread the virus. But, you know, boxing promoters in the States can and should begin thinking now about getting these minor events rolling. It's good for the fighters. It's good for the fans. It's good for the networks and the economies of the sport. If you have the testing, you can start putting on fights. So uh, yeah, all all signs point to the under on June 15th coming in and uh, 80% of the respondents, including you, Kieran, uh, picked the wrong side, it would appear. Uh, But uh, just be glad that Aram is going with June 9th, not June 15th exactly, because, oh my God, I'd be like prime Nassim Hamed claiming I was sent by God to rule boxing, uh, that level of insufferable if that had happened. You'd be doing the backflip into your office to record the podcast exactly how do you know i don't do that anyway well that's true i choose not to think of such things um so arm seems to be you know the, the first in terms of boxing permanence uh at least here in the united states 
Meanwhile, uh, going with our best of British theme, uh, Eddie Hearn has announced his plan to, at some point soon, stage boxing cards on the 15-acre garden headquarters of Matchroom Sport in Essex. Just imagine it, said Hearn. It is summer. The house is all lit up. You can see Canary Wharf in the distance. Fireworks are going off. Then over the hill walk Dillian White and Alexander Povetkin for a massive tear up on my lawn. So there you go. Um, So while you're riding this hot hand of yours, um, any thoughts on when exactly this might happen and who might be on the card and what kind of odds might be available? Because a friend would like to know. Well, if you want that sort of information, you're going to have to pay for my premium boxing tout <laughs> service membership. Costs extra money to get the Raskin whale plays, as I like to call them. So, uh, no, but I mean, I, I read I read what Eddie Hearn said. Uh, he was talking about uh, Katie Taylor, uh, talking about a women's fight uh, besides hers, uh, talking about, as you said, the uh, the Povetkin uh, f- uh, fight there. So, yeah, I mean, so things in that range, and it seems like he's he's looking at early July to start. So I, I can't set a better line than the one he basically spelled out in his quotes. <laughs> there you go. All right. So uh, it seems then that for better or for worse, advisedly or not, society is inching back into the open. Uh, but not us. No. No, sorry. Uh, we are still barricaded in our big people forts, uh, recording podcasts, writing away, watching TV, most importantly. So what exactly have you been watching in this past week or so? Well, I, I'm still continuing with my Israeli show, Fauda. I've got one episode to go in the third season and uh, really digging it. This might be the best season yet of the show. And I set a possible personal record the other night. My wife and I turned on an episode in bed. It was a 45-minute long episode. I had to watch the last 40 minutes by myself the next morning when I got up. That's how quickly my narcolepsy <laughs> kicked in. Got about five minutes deep. Uh on top of that, two family movies this week. Um, one, we pushed the envelope a bit in terms of proper taste for the kids, and uh, we continued their journey through the John Hughes over with Weird okay. Science. Okay. It is um, not so good. doesn't hold up too well. Probably it was uh. never good, but I was too young to realize it when I first saw it when I was about 11 or 12, and too stoned to realize it when I watched it a few times with my friends in college. Did I ever tell you the story of when I eliminated Anthony Michael Hall in the first hand of a poker tournament? He did not. Yeah. Well, it did happen, uh, but uh, I, I'll save the details. Let's give give the people a little tease. Just know that it happened, uh, and that weird science is actually somewhat relevant to the story. So uh, I'll leave it at that. Maybe we'll come back to it on a, a later filling time during a pandemic podcast. <laughs> right. um, the other movie we watched... Uh, just my son and I, uh, we watched The Mighty Ducks, which I'd never seen. Mm. Um, it is about, as I expected, innocent Disney underdog sports movie fun. Not particularly good, but not terrible, but very much up a 10-year-old's alley. So we watched that. And uh, one last thing uh, here. I think it was the first time that we did a Whatcha Watching segment was when you mentioned Parks and Recreation. That mm-hmm. I think you'd maybe recently finished binging it at that point, um, or were about to finish. So... My son recently finished The Office and was looking for his next thing. Uh, And I have an admission to make. I started watching Parks and Rec midway through its run and have seen a handful of the episodes I missed, but not all that many. So most of the first three seasons I haven't actually ever seen. So I'm remedying that now. Uh, Young Eli and I have started a Parks and Rec binge. Uh, We're going to tough out the lowly regarded first six episodes and and then probably spend the next couple of months watching the whole thing. Nice. Nice. So how about you? What you've been watching? Uh, Two things, really, Uh, both of which I've mentioned before. 
So I've now completed five seasons of Shit's Creek, which is as many as are presently available on Netflix in the United States. Um, I was both a bit bummed to find out that the final season isn't yet available for us here. But I, actually, I was also kind of relieved because it means I don't have to say goodbye to the characters <laughs> yet. Uh, dude, I love this show. Yeah, I absolutely love this show. Um, you know, and it's funny because when I first mentioned it, or maybe second time I'd mentioned it, after I'd watched a few episodes or was into season two, you asked me something to the effect of, um, you know, did I notice a substantial improvement from the first season to the second or something to that effect? Right. Um, and, and I didn't feel it at the time, but I've got to say, as it's gone on, it has gotten better. Like I thought seasons four and five especially were so strong. The characters, as you talked about when you, when you asked me that question, the characters are so fleshed out now and right. their interactions with each other are, are so um, evolved. And even the inter-family relationships have gotten a bit more nuanced. I mean, Moira remains an appallingly self-absorbed individual but like there are a couple of points even in season five where she just almost accidentally realizes that she's a mother and can do motherly things and um um and i really like the episode in which johnny and david wind up on opposing softball teams but yes. johnny's concern is to it's just root for david i i loved that episode so um yeah yeah well, i'm Sorry, go ahead. I, I, no, I just in terms of uh, you having to uh, stop watching until Netflix gets a hold of the sixth season, uh, my my mom uh, is uh, was on the same path as you, binging everything, and got to the end of season five and thought the same thing. And I said, check uh, check your on demand, just on your your cable. The sixth season aired on a network called Pop in the U.S. And uh, so as long as you have that network, you should have access on demand to the to the sixth ah, season. Interesting. I shall I shall check that out. Yeah. So but I may have spoiled your plans to to save it for later because you don't want to say goodbye to the characters yet. But uh, I'm pretty sure you can find it there. Oh, OK. Well, I'll go and have a look. So I may come back next right. week with a right. with a report on the on the sixth season. <laughs> um, the other show uh, that I've been watching where I finished watching is another one I mentioned a couple of weeks back. Um, I'd at that point just watched the opening episode of Tales from the Loop, which is on Amazon Prime. Right. I've now watched all eight. Wow. I mean, just wow. I, if you love like quality, intelligent science fiction, uh, which is ostensibly is science fiction, you, you'll love this. It's, hmm. it's a show that I love the fact that each episode is really it's about family. It's about human relationships. But there's this added extreme weirdness um, that isn't even in the background that permeates through like every interact, every basic family interaction point and, and plot line is infused with the weirdness of these experiments that go on underground. And um, it, it's interesting how they, they all stand alone, these episodes, but a character who may play a minor part in, in episode one will come and be the main character in episode mm. seven, for example. And it all does kind of like feedback on itself. Uh, I can't say too much about it without spilling spoilers, but uh, I accept to say that I strongly, strongly recommend it if this is the kind of show that, that you like. It's very different. Um, uh, I, as I think I might have mentioned before, the best review of it that I saw said, you know, on Tales from the Loop, things get very weird very slowly, which is exactly <laughs> how the show is. So, okay. um, And, of course, we both now have concluded watching Monzone. Uh, episodes 12 and 13 brought it to a close. Carlos Monzone did not, as it turns out, beat the murder rap, uh, nor, based on episode 13, should he have done. Uh, Eric, your thoughts on the last two episodes and, and, and on the series Monzone? Yeah, boy, the uh, the 13th and final episode was not what I expected. Um, episode 12, 
which was a fairly normal episode. Uh, you know, a bit of semi-boring legal stuff, some Gustavo stuff I didn't care about that much, an unexpected flashback to a young Carlos scene. We had all that, and then episode 12 ended on a cliffhanger with Monzone ready to speak in court. And then episode 13 gave no payoff to the cliffhanger. Yeah. And the thing is, I thought episode 13 was very good. It was just not what I was expecting. I immediately thought at the beginning, this is a very smart narrative choice to go back to the lead up to Alicia's death uh, for the opening scene or two, I'm thinking. And then it turned out that it was a good chunk of the episode. But okay, we're still going to spend half the episode at the trial, right? And then it kept going and going and you realize this is the whole episode. We get him killing her, him tossing her over the balcony, him jumping, and the whole trial and his death is yada yada as two lines of postscript. <laughs> I'm not saying it was a bad choice. It was just a really strange choice that I did not see coming. What, what did you think of that approach on the finale? I loved it. Um, I thought it was great. I actually thought that the final four episodes or so of the series were the strongest of them all, but that they all like took that turn away from that conventional narrative you know that episode 10 was the monzone retrospective and episode 11 was about alicia muniz mm -hmm. and like you said 12 was more conventional uh, i i really thought it was very strong that the way they did that it was interesting you even though we all knew obviously how it all wound up they gave you a hint with some of the ways that they portrayed the older monzone that you know maybe the filmmakers weren't convinced that he really did do it and then episode 13 <laughs> which i'm guessing was reenacted based on the what the prosecution would have laid out had we seen the more conventional narrative right um yeah put that to bed it was pretty obvious that, that, that they certainly believe that he did it he did it yeah i mean it was really interesting to contrast this choice they made with the fx oj series which i've mentioned a time or two mm where they never showed us a theory of what happened that night. We, we don't see OJ kill Nicole and Ron. Right. Uh, here we see it all, even though nobody who is alive today really knows for sure exactly what happened. Um, and just especially in the lead up to it, I'm thinking we're hearing all these conversations that had to be right. imagined, pretty much made up out of out of whole cloth in terms of just the conversations they were having that night. Um, I, I thought, you know, yeah, definitely a very good final hour of TV. Just a somewhat confounding choice to to lay it out in in the way that they did. Um, and you know, ultimately, I think when I now that we've completed it, I'd give the show something like a, a B or a B minus. You know, it was it was good. Yeah, I, I'm glad I watched it. I doubt I'll really find myself recommending it to anyone unless they completely run out of stuff to watch during the pandemic, which could happen, of course. Uh, <laughs> but it was fine. But I think if someone hasn't seen The People vs. O.J. Simpson and mm. they're asking which which they should watch, I'll tell them to binge that 100 times out of 100 over Monzone. Yes, yes. I would I would definitely agree with that. Uh, I, I think the, the whole series, I, I didn't go in with it hugely high expectations i don't think i had any expectations at all really when we went into it right. and um and i did enjoy it i i was yeah it, it wasn't a chore for me to sit down and watch like those three episodes every week or, or right. the two episodes every week i quite looked forward to it um i i i did quite enjoy it uh, i i did think it finished strong and yeah as you said obviously the 
the the circumstances leading up to to the murder were obviously somewhat invented um, for that episode 13. But nonetheless, seeing how a situation could just spiral out of control, especially when you put, you know, one person is is somewhat unhinged uh, anyway, and you throw yep. large amounts of alcohol in there. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the real sense of tragedy about the whole thing, I thought, came across very well um, uh, through all of that. So, yeah, I'm not unhappy that we did it. Uh, no. I'm glad. I'm glad I watched it. Learned a few things. So yeah, didn't didn't think it was too bad. But at the same time, unlike the feeling when I realized there was no season six of Shit's Creek on Netflix, I don't <laughs> didn't feel an emptiness in my life when it was over. Right. And I yeah, pretty sure there will not be a Monzone season two. Not sure how they'd do that. So. Yeah, indeed. All right. Uh, this Friday, beginning at 10 p.m. Eastern and Pacific, Showtime continues its series of boxing classics with two of the very best of British, Joe Calzaghi. Moving to 41-0 with a one-sided beatdown of Jeff Lacey and Ricky Hatton sending Costa Zoo into retirement with an impressive 11th round stoppage on one of the most memorable nights ever seen in a British boxing ring. And here to talk to us now about those fights and those fighters and about the state of British boxing more generally is a very good friend of ours, one of the classiest men in boxing on either side of the Atlantic. From the Telegraph, Gareth A. Davis. Gareth, it's great to talk to you. Thanks so much for joining us on the Showtime Boxing Podcast. It's an absolute pleasure, Kieran, and great to be reunited with both of you. It's lovely to, to be hearing you and also Eric. It's, it's a real pleasure to be on. Thank you very much indeed for that lovely intro. You bet. Hey, look, look, first of all, we've been kicking off every interview over the past couple of months. These are not normal times, so we've been, we've been kicking everything off with a check-in. The important question first, how are you? How are your loved ones? How are you coping with everything? What's the situation in the UK right now? Well, in general, of course, we've had a lot of um, fatalities, which is very, very sad. On a personal level, you know, I live out in the countryside and I've got a lot of space and it's fantastic. Um, I don't have a symptom in sight. I haven't had my antibodies tested yet. Um, even though I was in New York and covering a Bellator event in mid-March in Connecticut and New York, when, when things started to lock down, I got home quickly. I'll find out in the next week whether I've got antibodies. My daughters, my parents, or my extended family, no one seems to have any symptoms. Everybody's kind of you know, prepared and is keeping to the lockdown. We're quite blessed in that way that no one's really ill, so we're not panicking for those people we can't get to. But... Um, you know, it is the most peculiar time. And it yeah. really reminds me, you know, as, as a man in my early 50s, it reminds me kind of the simplicity of 1980, like 30 years ago. Yeah. But we've got social media to contact each yeah. other. Um, it's a very odd time. I do think it's worth being very sensible and sensitive to what people are going through. And I, and I don't like all the conspiracy theories, really. Yeah, and right. For once, I don't mind herding with the sheep and following yes. the common denominator. <laughs> yep. right. yeah, absolutely. How about you guys? Yeah, basically pretty much right there with you. Um, you know, like yourself, I'm here in Vermont out in the country. And, you know, Vermont and Alaska are, are my sort of two home bases. And they've both dealt pretty well with it so far. And my friends in Alaska are fine. And folks here are fine. And... Look, I've been, I'm probably a lot like you, and Eric and I have talked about this, I've been training 25 years for this whole (laughs) moment, right? So, uh, unfortunately, we've got work, uh, I'm comfortable being at home, and yeah, it's it's disconcerting to see some of the things that are starting to get out there and the way that people are reacting, and let's hope that things continue to go downward and we don't have a big, massive spike in a couple of months again, uh, which, which sends us all back to the beginning. 
Yeah, yeah, and I'm 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 in the same boat as as Kieran, coping reasonably well with everything uh, that, that's going on within my house and and dealing with all that. When I look at what's going on outside my house, I get angry and frustrated uh, <laughs> quite frequently. But uh, but as far as it's the direct impact on me and my family, it's been minimal so far. Now, if my kids can't go to overnight camp for the summer, I may, I may retract that statement. But uh, <laughs> but, but but for now, we're dealing. So. Um, but but you mentioned the simplicity of, of 1980. Let's go back to a, another relatively simple time long before anybody knew what a COVID was. June 4th, 2005, in the very early hours of the morning at the MEN Arena in Manchester as underdog Ricky Hatton took the 140-pound title from future Hall of Famer Costa Zhu, Zhu surrendering after 11 rounds and never fighting again. Uh, anyone who's been ringside for a Ricky Hatton fight knows what a wild atmosphere he and his fans could generate. Describe the scene for us on that night and, and what you remember about it all. Well, the funny thing is, so many people remember it. I mean, I've even been up to Ricky's gym like on the 10-year anniversary of it, and we sat in his Hyde gym. That The name, is, the place is Hyde, just outside Manchester, where Ricky had his, has his gym now, and he trains fighters just a few miles from his home. And it's extraordinary how many people from British boxing um, were there that night. Mm. Um, people like Terry Flanagan, who was a little whippersnapper of a kid, who stole his way in there with no ticket to mm. get ringside. Loads of people have got stories... Anthony Crawler, um, Joe Gallagher, Callum Smith, the Smith brothers, everybody that is anyone in British boxing now remembers that night because you've got to remember that at the time, Kostya Zhu, even though he'd been fairly inactive um, he was th- and was 35 years old, he was the first man to unify the light welterweight division in 30 years. And he... There was something teaked tough about him. He was Siberian, wasn't he? But he'd he'd, he'd, he'd absconded and gone and become an Australian. Um, He looked impermeable. Um, Hatton, as you say, was the underdog. The noise in the Manchester arena was extraordinary because Ricky Hatton, remember, was the kind of guy that would go and play darts in the pub and have a pint with his with the people that love to follow him. He was the everyman. He was the blue-collar hero. He was the man that had drunk Bovril or a little cup of Marmite in the stands as a kid watching Man City uh, playing, but now had a box there, um, you know, a debenture box. He was a guy who's, who'd grown up in a pub with his parents being publicans. He never lost the common touch. You know, he'd be out boozing and you know, would balloon up in weight between fights. Um, And people would, everyone had a story about knowing Ricky Hatton. And he had literally garnered thousands and thousands of fans. But this was the real step up. It was the time when the WBU title was around. And he'd gone on whatever it was. I can't remember the number. It might have been 17, 18 defenses of the title. He was undefeated in 38 fights. And I don't think anyone really gave him a proper chance because mm. I think, guys, I think Kostya Zhu was still ranked in the top three pound for pound at the time, wasn't he? I think he? so. I at, think least, so too, at least top yeah. five, yeah, right up in that area, yeah. But I think the advantage for Ricky, the, the reason why people like myself and others were giving Ricky a chance in this fight was that Hatton could get going very quickly in fights and be very aggressive to the body. And Kostya Zhu was a renowned slow starter, a brilliant point fighter and a brilliant 
timer and and a fantastic puncher in the mid range, but with a with a teak tough chin, great ability, long punches, very powerful. Who, in some ways, I think the comparison I would make in modern boxing, very similar to a Miguel Cotto. Uh, 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 his style was built for championship fighting, um, and 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 I think because Hatton had held the WBU title and and was a hero over here, it was that moment of is this Brit actually going to be good enough when mm. he steps up against this guy who is definitely not just world class but elite class. But the whole thing was the excitement was it was at home, right and right. And so Hatton had all the advantages, all the advantages. And, and I don't know whether you agree with this, but referee Dave Paris that night really allowed Hatton to fight his kind of fight, which was to harry, push, bully, throw body shots, um, be really aggressive, harry again, um, be, be dirty almost. But in that Hatton way, he wasn't a dirty fighter, but just fight in a way that other referees didn't always let him fight in. Right, right. Yeah, I, I recently saw an interview that he did with you, Ricky, on the 10th anniversary of the fight. And he said, the phrase that he used, he said that night was his Everest. Yes. That he was never able to scale those heights quite again. Is that a fair assessment, do you think? Because he did go on to have a lot more success, of course. But is that a fair assessment? And if it is, you talked about the fact that he would blow up in weight, that he would drink beer and all of that. Was that, the and his fighting style, the very elements that made him so popular, what ultimately meant that he never quite reached those heights ever again? Well, I think from what Ricky says, and I agree with this in a way, he won the, the vacant WB light welterweight title against Tony Pep, who was a decent name um, in his 23rd fight. And then he had very good wins against Vince Phillips, Eamon McGee. They're all decent names. Ben Tacky, um, Ray Oliveira. Yeah. And then stepped up against Costa Zou. Um, so these were really good fights. But what that victory over Costa Zou, making Costa Zou quit, mm-hmm. led to this exodus after one more fight, you know, he had a tough fight against Carlos Mauser in yeah. Sheffield afterwards. And then there was this journey to America. Right. And it was then Luis Calazzo, Juan Orango, Jose Luis Castillo, you know, the perfect punch against Castillo, who'd given Floyd Mayweather tremors that projected him into this Floyd Mayweather fight, into the pound for pound list. And, you know, you listen to the, to the stories at the time, the truth is behind that, Jose Luis Castillo, and I'm not diminishing what Ricky Hatton achieved in that run up to Floyd Mayweather. Castillo had a big fine to pay. We learned afterwards he probably only earned 110,000 US dollars when all was said and done. I mean, Hatton did hit him with a perfect liver punch, to be fair, that night. Um, but the, I agree that the the big fights, the Floyd Mayweather fights, the 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 the. Ma- Manny Pacquiao fights that everybody remembers because they were the pound for pound guys, the legends. They were money fights for Ricky because he, against Costa Zou in his hometown mm. as a big underdog, would he never believed he would be that great. The Floyd Mayweather Manny Pacquiao fights, he was probably past his peak by then mm. um, and hadn't evolved his style in a way to beat those fighters certainly against Manny you were both there 
he was a he was a ghost of himself at that point. Uh, he wasn't right mentally. I mean, he was like a statue being beaten up yeah. by 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 the, the the vicious Filipino, wasn't he? You know, yeah. on 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 the second of May two thousand and nine. Yeah, but even so, uh, with that Pacquiao fight as badly as it ended for Ricky Hatton, uh, what everyone remembers about that fight was the crowd, the atmosphere, the people that he brought over from Britain, even though they only got to see him uh, for, for two rounds uh, in that one. And, and you know, that's a, that's a huge topic with, when you look back on Hatton was his popularity. You know, Britain has had some enormously popular boxers over the years, especially over the last 30 or so years. Nigel Benn, Chris Eubank, Lennox Lewis, Nassim Ahmed, Anthony Joshua, Tyson Fury, of course, Frank Bruno. Um, it feels as if, with the possible exception of Bruno, who at times was more of a novelty figure, he, he was beloved but not entirely believed in, uh, it feels as if, other than maybe Bruno, Hatton was the most popular of them all. Is that the case, would you say? And, and if so, why do you think that was? Well, I mean, as I say, you know, I, I think he was the most popular. I mean, I think that means the most to him as well, by the way, because when the, it's the belts that the belts don't matter in the end. It's the fighters that make the belts, isn't it? And mm -hmm. it's the legends that live on. You mentioned the Manny Pacquiao and Floyd Mayweather fights. Obviously, Ricky was knocked out in both of those fights, but they were still singing they the were. Only One Ricky Hatton. <laughs> yep. you yep. know? And, and walking in a hat in Wonderland. And yep. you know, guys, whenever a Brit, and we've had it recently with Tyson Fury, whenever a Brit goes back to Vegas to fight, be it George Groves or, or, or Amir Khan, you talk to the security the, the guys and get the gals in the bars, uh, in the shops, they always remember the days of the Ricky Hatton fans coming. 25,000 was a, what the number I put on it for the Floyd Mayweather. In fact, when I spoke to Ricky the other day, he said it was 40,000. But that's what happens when, <laughs> when, when, when time goes on. He, he, he's popular because he never had airs and graces. He will always stop and have time for people. I think... We watched him descend into darkness. He's spoken about being suicidal after his boxing career and depression he suffered. Um, and I think seeing him climb back and be happy and his son, who's 18, who's, who's given him a grandson recently or granddaughter, I can't remember which, and who looks like a chip off the old block who's boxing and, and, and training other boxers has really brought Ricky into focus again. But he was just such a lovable character. He always had a story for you. I'll never forget sitting in the very hot room at the back of the gym he used to train in, an old hat factory um, in Denton, just outside Manchester, with Billy Graham, who had a voice, used to smoke 60 a day, with a voice <laughs> like crushed coal, as you call it. You know, Billy would talking like this, you know, at the back. And there'd be a giant lizard. It'd be 150 degrees in the office at the back. Because Billy kept a giant lizard in, in the office, yeah? It was about three foot long. So it's like 20 of you crammed into there after the final workout before you head to America for a big fight week. You're all sweating. You're soaking with sweat. And this lizard is crawling around the back of Ricky's head. And, and, and it's only in boxing. Only right. in boxing. But these are the kind of stories. I remember Ricky telling me a story once about he found himself four in the morning I hope I can tell the story. Yeah, I'm going to tell it. <laughs> Ricky got drunk one night, and I don't know when it was because I can't put a date on it, but he went back with this girl to her place, and he thought he'd bought condoms in the toilet as they were leaving, but he'd actually bought mints, uh, mints as in mints to suck. And 
So obviously, you know, he's picked up this girl. He's gone back to her place. He's got his little, they're about to have sex, of course. And Ricky's realised he hasn't got condoms. He's got mints. Yeah. <laughs> so he, he calls a cab um, and he goes out in her fluffy, you know, those women's fluffy slippers. Yeah. <laughs> a pair of boxer shorts and a T-shirt and her fluffy slippers. He's going to nip up the road to the shop. He either gets a taxi or he walks there. He's really drunk, so, but he gets the condoms. And when he comes back, he can't remember which house it is, yeah? <laughs> so, so he's walking along. He's got his condoms, and he's, like, walking up and down this street with his fluffy slippers on, and it's kind of four or five in the morning by now. Look, he tells that story, right. but he, that's just one of hundreds of stories hundreds of stories of Ricky Hatton. And that, 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 I don't think I've ever printed that story. It's not a printable story in the Telegraph, but he's just so identifiable with, he's so lovely and he's so open and he's so giving. Um, I think to, to, it's a very long answer that. Frank Bruno is still a national treasure. Ricky's a national treasure, but I do think, and I have the privilege twice now of going into Tyson Fury's dressing room before he fought Deontay Wilder. And as you both know, when you're invited in like that and you're allowed to go in, it's the greatest privilege you get yeah. as a journalist to be allowed in the dressing room an hour before a fight to come and be there for 10 minutes and, and write your piece about being in there and what's going on. Ricky's in the dressing room as well for Tyson Fury. Um, I think Tyson Fury is on that same level as popular as, as well as Ricky now, for those very, very same reasons. He, he's a British treasure. He'll always be a legend. And when, when I had him on my radio show recently and said to him, um, what does it mean to you to be arguably the most loved, most popular British boxer ever, along with Henry Cooper and all the others back in history, he said it means everything, everything to him. Because that's what people remember. And, and, you both know yourselves that um, you remembered that the fans singing, you know, there's only one uh, Ricky Hatton. Yeah, he's, he's, he's brilliant. He's just brilliant. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't be doing my job as a journalist if I didn't ask, did he find the apartment ultimately? He, <laughs> how does the story end? Uh, does it does it have a happy ending for lack of a better phrase? Oh, dear me. That's very, very poor asking that. Uh, <laughs> As, as, as my great mentor, Colin Hart, the doyen of boxing writers, still alive, tells me, son, the best stories you never write or tell. So that's, <laughs> it will, I don't know is the answer. Okay. okay. <laughs> but seriously, who among us has never had that happen to them? That's <laughs> right. Um, but, well, well you, you two might have. I've never had that happen to me, so. Um, so look, nine months after that... <laughs> Um, after that fight, uh, that following year, <laughs> Joe Kalzaki. Uh, <laughs> Karen is delighting in the awkwardness of this transition. I love it. No, I no, no, I'm not. Well, I'm thinking about mints and condoms. That's right. all. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've done the I've done the reverse where I meant to buy mints and came away with condoms. Right. So, you know, but, yeah. but, so, so was there a happy ending as a result, or did you just <laughs> were you just accused it of being like, a, a gentleman? Never tells. It, it was, exactly. it was a very fragrant ending. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, so, look, uh, the year after the Ricky fought at the MEN Arena, uh, Joe Calzaghe was there, and he took on Jeff Lacey, um, who, like him at the time, was unbeaten. Uh, he didn't send Lacey directly into retirement, the way Hatton did with Zoo, but he finished him um, as a legitimate contender. I mean, Lacey took a fearful beating that night, um, somehow made it to the end. Should that fight have been stopped? 
well before that final round? Um, well, I mean, stopped maybe, but the, um, but I think I think there was an arrogance from Gary Shaw and his crew coming over mm. with Lacey. I remember them trumpeting him. It's one of my favourite fights. This, by the way, one uh, of my favourite fights in thirty years of being involved in this, hmm. and I'll tell you why. Because this was the fight, really, that that led to Joe Calzaghe becoming a massive legend and fighting Mikkel Kessler afterwards, and um, the two fights for Bernard Hopkins and Roy Jones Jr. to showcase his great skills at the end of his career, and and I think potentially putting him up there in the top three, certainly post-war of all of best British boxers, and to walk away 46-0. Um, he was 40-0 when he fought Jeff Lacey. Jeff, Jeff left hook Lacey. That was in Manchester, of course, as well. Um, the reason, gents, why I love that fight is because they were calling Jeff Lacey the super middleweight Mike Tyson. And physically, he looked amazing. 6-1, massive muscles, very powerful, huge legs. Looked like, like a miniature um, Evander Holyfield, you know, mm. with the V-shape, tiny waist, big arms, handsome dude, moody. Um, Calzaghe wasn't up for that fight. He complained about hand injuries. Mm. But his performance that night was, I, I, I use this expression, was like Rudolf Nureyev in ballet. He danced and he moved and he hit him with combinations of four or five punches and he went under Lacey's hooks and he went round again in circles and he bamboozled him and it was like hypnotism. It was, and he was like, a, he was like a, a punch bag. He was like a human punch bag for Calzaghe that night. He hit him with so many punches. Um, 119, 105, 119, 107, 119, 107. Um, I mean... I looked at the, the punch stats. 351 blows he landed from 948 punches thrown. Um, Lacey landed with 116 from 444. It was... The reason why I loved it so much was because... I don't know if you've either... Have you Both of you have experienced this as well. I couldn't sleep for two days afterwards. I had so mm -hmm. much adrenaline. Mm -hmm. I remember staying up till five in the morning just writing a thousand words and sending it to the Telegraph, then just driving home from Manchester, which was a three-hour drive, then not being able to sleep all day, and then writing all the next day. I, th I don't think I slept till Tuesday morning. Wow. Um, but because the, I've watched it again because I knew we were doing this. It was such a pure performance. I don't mm -hmm. know how you saw it. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It was pretty close to perfection. And I think that, at least speaking on behalf of most of the American fans and media, we knew he was good. We didn't know he was that good. That was the fight that, that made us start to view him as the truly elite boxing talent that he was. Would you say, looking back, Gareth, that that win over, over Lacey is the best win of his career? Or, or would you... Uh, at least call it his most important win because of what it paved the way for? Well, he was underrated by the Americans. And I think we were yeah. going through a thing. I don't think it's the same anymore. But 15 years ago, there was always this thing that Brits were brilliant in Europe and they got to a certain level and then they never went to do it in America. But th this was the beginning of that really happening. If you discount 
Lennox Lewis being a Brit, because he's claimed by Jamaica, he's claimed by Canada, he's, he's claimed by Britain now. Mm -hmm. um, he's seen as a British heavyweight champion now. But I think at the time, there was always this thing that Brits would go to America and fail. And that had happened since Ken Buchanan had had success in the 70s and John H. Stracy and all those guys that were going over at that time. And I think it, it created the fight with Mikkel Kessler. It made Calzaghe really big because there was a lot of interest in him after that. It, it, it created the, Kel the, the, the Kessler fight, um, which was 50,000 people then at the Millennium Stadium in Cardiff. And even then, Calzaghe was a reluctant media figure. But <laughs> again, you talk about the Mayweather-Hatton fight. We were all there in the media room that day. I'm not going to lose to a white boy. Um, yeah, yeah. As, as Bernard Hopkins said, and it made the fight yeah. in the media room. It's why these yeah. places are so important in the history of our sports to have these things where we all come together from around the world. Joe only came over to see Ricky Hatton fight in 2007, but in 2007, he beat Kessler. He became our BBC sports personality of the year, which is pretty much the biggest award you can get uh, here. Only um, Lennox Lewis, Gosh, I forget. Uh, Barry McGuigan and a few. I think they're the only two that won it apart from him. Anthony Joshua hasn't won it. Tyson Fury hasn't won it. So Calzaghe was presented in 2007 in the bowels of the MGM on the Sunday after Ricky had lost to, to Mayweather, was presented with the award. Ricky came third and Joe's father won trainer of the year in all yeah. of those awards. There are, you know, they were used to be voted for by the general public. So it projected him, the Kessler fight. And then all we needed in the next year and a half was the wins over Roy Jones Jr. and Bernard Hopkins, who are all-time American legends. Yeah. And I yeah. think from there on in, the success of Carl Froch in America, the success Amir Khan had in America, the success Tyson Fury's had in America, have all added to the fact that Britons, Britons are taken more seriously now. And there's, it's a smaller, the pond has shrunk and a lot of big American stars fight over here and a lot of British stars fight over there now. You know, Cal Brook's success over there. You know, um, I think it's changed, don't you, that yep. Brits used to be looked down upon by Americans, but they don't mm. anymore. Yeah, yeah, 100%, very different. And, and you know, you talked about how, where you would put Joe in terms of the best of all British boxers. Uh, a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, Eric and I were discussing who we thought might be the best 168-pounder around the world of all time. Um, we felt like in terms of natural ability, you can't really argue with Roy Jones, but he didn't stick at 168 very long. So we were thinking, you know, in terms of who achieved the most – it's either Joe or Andre Ward. And we kind of, we had a split decision there. We split down the middle as to which one we might lean to, but it's very close on both sides. Break the tie for us. Andre uh, or Joe Calzaghe? I had the great privilege of recording an hour's podcast with Andre, who is a man I love. And I went to his favorite um, eatery just outside Oakland. And we had breakfast there. And we sat in a booth. It's like a diner. And um, it was lovely to have like an hour, hour and a half with Andre. And when it came to asking him, well, I was asking him about fancy fights. And we talked about why he never fought again with, with, Joe Cal with, with Carl Froch. When I brought up Joe Calzaghe and who would win out of him and Joe Calzaghe, we had a long conversation about that. There was a lot, <laughs> of, even with him, ooing and ahhing. 
And he was like, ooh, this is difficult. Because Andre's a fair man, and he knows yeah. that that would have been a very, very difficult fight to pick. Mm. And I go for split decision draw, right? <laughs> Well, this is useless for settling the debate. You belong. You belong on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, 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 what I came up with it because Joe. When I asked Joe, because because even even Andre didn't argue with me, and that's what I found amazing. Because most boxers will say, "No, no, I beat him." It's a really close fight. Joe said, "I think I'd beat Andre." He's, um, when I spoke to Joe about it just a few weeks ago, but Andre, in his an, uh, uh, his analyst with his analyst hat on, said. So I said, look, so first one's a split draw, and that's in America. But then you've got to come to a big stadium in the UK for the second fight. And you've got to beat him in England, you know, or in Wales. And then, and then he was smiling and he was thinking about it. It's very, very difficult to pick um, because both have got incredible chins. Both are very awkward fighters. Andre has the awkwardness of a southpaw about him. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's almost like a right-handed southpaw. Mm-hmm. He can do anything. And he molds himself to other styles. All I would say is, I think the blueprint for beating Joe Calzaghi, or the blueprint for that fight, is probably in what happened with Bernard Hopkins. Mm-hmm. And some people think Hopkins won by a round. Some people think that Joe won by a round. I, th- I personally thought Joe Calzaghi won by two rounds. Because I think... Hopkins gave up during the fight towards the end because he couldn't find a way in. Um, I can't pick against Joe in this fight, I'm afraid. I cannot do it. But I think they may have had to have had two or three fights because I think Joe is arguably, post-war, the greatest British boxer, you know? Hmm. Uh, I I mean, he walks away 46-0. He's beaten two of all-time American greats. He was behind against Kessler. And he came back and he changed the pattern of the fight. Kessler was in his prime then and undefeated. Um, he got up off the canvas and he fought hard when he, um, when he was knocked down. He had an incredible chin. And we got to mention Enzo Calzaghi here, his father, yeah. mm-hmm. who without him, the late great Enzo, 2018, he passed. And Joe's mother passed recently, by the way. She had pneumonia. Um, and he, Joe wonders if it might have been COVID-19. Mm. Um, without his dad as a cheerleader in this, did you, did either of you ever go to his gym in Newbridge in South Wales? No, I spent some time with his dad though, which was an well, experience in another. Well, itself. yeah, I mean, with Enzo, you put the dictaphone on, you had a 25 minute interview and you had two <laughs> lines. Could you want to talk like this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're going to win. So you talked to him for 25 minutes. And you'd get two lines when you yeah. went back over the dictaphone. But you knew what he was saying. They trained in a rickety gym down about 60 concrete steps on the edge of a rugby field in a hollow in the valley down in Newbridge with holes in the ceiling on a, an old tin roof with crappy old equipment. The lights didn't work. But do you know what? They were old school. And Enzo, because he was a musician, I think... He was. He did backing. He had a backing band that 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 I don't know. I think they used to warm up for for bands like Bucks Fizz. Do you remember bands like yeah. Bucks Fizz? Um, but his dad was a musician, and I think because because of the way notes are written in music, he taught Joe to sh- to throw combinations in five, six, seven 
mm-hmm. um, in bunches of five and six and seven. And, and it met, I think Joe was very eye-catching for judges. And a lot of the great British boxers, in my view, have very much had their own style. Lennox had his own style, that relaxed, heavy punching behind the jab, a little bit more classical. Nazim Hamid, Ricky Hatton, Carl Froch, hunting with a low right hand. Um, uh, Amir Khan with fast hands. Um, Joe, Joe, his own style. And I think that's what's made them unique and enabled them to go... Uh, around the world and do their thing um but without enzo and that rickety old gym i don't think joe would have achieved what he achieved you know Mm. but that lacy night was definitely the moment when his career was projected upwards yeah yeah so uh we've talked about the arguably the most popular british fighter of of modern times and as you said arguably the best british fighter of modern times uh let's move on to to the present day uh obviously boxing in britain has come to a standstill in the same way that it has elsewhere i know the uk government has given a tentative go-ahead to sports resuming in june at the and that the premier league is hoping to do just that do you think we'll see professional boxing in british rings before next month is over no, no, I don't think we'll see anything. Okay. Um, I think America's pushing on because the UFC and, and, and diff, has, has had events. Um, I think because it's federal, um, different states are at different states of lockdown yep. um, or levels of lockdown. Here, we're very homogenous. You know, the government have said what's what. I think you'll find that Bob Arum announces on Monday or Tuesday that they are going ahead with that June the 9th event at an MGM property in Las Vegas. I don't think we'll get anything till mid-July, um, even late July. And I think it will probably be only be Frank Warren and Eddie Hearn shows that go on BT Sports and Sky Sports, who are the two main broadcasters. I've spent the last 10 days actually talking to a lot of small hall show promoters and a lot of journeyman fighters. Most of our journeyman fighters in the UK have second jobs. So they're just reverting to those at the moment. A lot of them are manual. In, in manufacturing or in, in, in blue-collar work. Um, I think the dichotomy is we're going to see 10, 8, 6, and 4-round fights, 5 or six, 6 fights, in a lockdown arena with no audience, mm-hmm. with fighters probably quarantining for two weeks before they fight. I wouldn't rule out a women's world title fight because they're only 10 rounds. Mm-hmm. That might happen. I could see Terry Harper and Natasha Jonas fighting in mid to late March. Terry holds the WBC super featherweight title that she took off Eva Wallström um, very early in the year. But I think that's all we're going to see. And to a man, and even the small hall show promoters have, have backed up what Frank Warren and, and Eddie Hearn are saying, which is, these events aren't to make money. They're just to keep boxing going. Right. Um, right. I, I think that's what we're going to see. And I'm really glad because I, I'm ambivalent about boxing coming back till we're ready. Um, mm-hmm. I do think what life has to start again. We can't stay locked down forever. But, you know, there's going to be the necessary return of this evil thing, I think. The, sorry, yeah. not the necessary there's the necessary going out to make society and economics and life work again, but the unnecessary evil is going to come back because I think it's a byproduct of our new world. And I don't think we're going to see an audience at events till November, at least 
you know? Mm, right. Um, and certainly not 50, 70, 90,000 for an Anthony Joshua, um, Kubrat Pula fight or a Tyson Fury, Deontay Wilder fight. I don't see it. I just don't see it. I don't know if you agree with that or, or disagree. Well, that was going to sort of lead into the next question is that, you know, you're, we're still seeing talk of, you know, is Fury going to pay Deontay Wilder step aside money? Is Joshua going to do that with Pulev? As if all of this wasn't happening and if that a Joshua Fury clash might still be on the horizon. Is it your sense that if one's being realistic about this, the present situation has basically just put all, everything like that on hold for now. And we can't even seriously think about a Fury-Joshua fight until late next year or something like that. Is that what you're thinking right now? Yeah, I, I'm, I, it's very frustrating, actually. It's one of the frustrating things about being an insider in the sports. Because, you know, I, I, can, I can call or send a message now and again to Eddie Hearn or Frank Warren or Bob Arum when your desk your news desk calls you and says, have you seen this? Mm. You know? And I'm like, yeah, I've seen it. But it's because someone said this on a podcast and now that it's been turned into a news story. And the mm. truth is, we know how it works because we're around these people all the time. We know how it works because we contact them. But we also know how boxing works. I'm on record as saying, there's no way if I was Deontay Wilder would I ever take step aside money. Mm. Tyson Fury could beat Anthony Joshua and disappear off the face of the boxing right. earth forever. <laughs> and I'd never get my chance to, 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 to resurrect. Um, not, not, not only that, the third fight is actually fascinating. He, he had an off night. He wasn't right. He's still a dangerous elite fighter. But Fury had the perfect game plan for the night. Right. And Deontay Wilder fell into Fury's trap. Yeah. Fury, um, and you know, there's a lot of bullshit in boxing. There's a lot of chances in boxing. There's a lot of chancery around stories and people's opinions. It's a sport of opinions. But as the great Neville Cardus wrote about cricket, a great fact is worth a thousand opinions, you know? Um, and, and, and here's the thing. I agree with you, Kieran. And I think everything slides on. It's, it's, Terrible for the likes of people like Dillian White, who's still waiting for the WBC title challenge and does deserve one. But I really do think that it could be, unless they do it behind closed doors and make it massive on YouTube and to the general public and don't charge, you know, 50 quid on, or $90 or whatever, if they open it to the entire world to YouTube, on YouTube or something and they do Wilder Fury behind closed doors, it could happen this year, I think, late in the year. Or, or even September, October. And if everyone was paying £5 a pop or $10 a pop on YouTube and they managed to get 30 million views or whatever, then it would be great. But otherwise, I think we'll wait till early next year. I think people will travel to Vegas by then. We'll have seen 15 or so events. They'll have worked out the parameters of how we do these things, where the media sits. Are they behind screens in little cubicles? They'll have worked it all out. Do you know what I mean? Right. Um, and I think Fury Wilder will take place. And I think Joshua Kubrat Pulev will take place. And I think the winner of those, the winners of those two fights could well fight in Saudi Arabia. Cause I think it'd be a big gate late, late summer, late summer, 2021, you know? Right. And, but if, if Fury wins against Wilder in the third fight, I'm still interested to see Wilder against Joshua. Mm -hmm. um, if Wilder wins the third fight, Wilder-Joshua and the winner of that 
facing Fury again. It's it's what it's what Holmes, Ali, Frazier, Foreman yep. did in yep. the seventies. Why the bloody hell can't we see it again? <laughs> yeah, you know. Right, yeah. Right. I mean, do you agree with that? Those those that slide rule, if you like. Yeah, I think we've we've all thought that there's a chance that because of that big, you know, stars make fights, right? It might be that Wilder just cannot beat Fury, but it could be that because of that right hand, and maybe AJ doesn't have the strongest of chins, Wilder beats Joshua. Maybe Joshua beats Fury. Maybe it's one of those right. things that just, you know. <laughs> or maybe Fury is, is you know, a once in in every few generations kind of talent, and he beats everyone, and right. uh, that's certainly a possibility, and uh, yeah, hopefully we get to well, find out before it's too late for these guys. Well, he's got one of the greatest IQs, I think. I think he deserves that credit. He's got one of the greatest mm-hmm. IQs as a boxer we've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there's no, and that's up there with Mike Tyson, Muhammad, and I, I credit Mike Tyson with a great boxing IQ. Mike Tyson, Evander Holyfield, um, um, Canelo Alvarez, Floyd Mayweather, Pennell Whitaker, you know, go back, Benny Leonard, you can go back and back and back. I've just done the composite boxer, actually, that I'd love to talk to you about another day. I created the perfect composite oh, yeah. boxer mm, okay. with 13 elements. And, and it was fascinating to, to how you judge era to era. Um, mm. But what, I, what I'm interested in asking you two and turning it back on you. Um, is, Whose show is this? <laughs> it's your show. It's your, this is your right of reply right now. Okay. Um, because I've had far too much airtime here. Um, <laughs> could you see any of those big fights going on behind closed doors? Is it actually possible? I I tend to think not. And uh, yeah. I suppose if this were to drag out longer than we think. Yes, I see. I see. See you making the little money symbol. Yeah, money. Money talks. Uh, I think it's one of those things where people are going to push those fights that would would draw a gigantic crowd down the road uh, that, that they're not going to want to rush into into those and give up that gate unless as you say they can make up for it somehow with YouTube fees that are off the charts or unless this pandemic stretches on to a point where right. they just run out of patience and say well we got to make this fight now or it's or we're never gonna make right. it Karen? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. If it looks like you can get people coming back by the end of the year, then you wait. If it looks as if the situation is going to be such that you're not going to get gate money or you're not going to get any gate money for anything until 2022, then you figure out the way to make it happen. But otherwise, no, I, I, that, that gate money and, and just that whole site fee, the money it yeah, brings to Vegas. But so you know, do you know what would work on YouTube right now? Uh, an exhibition rematch between Evander Holyfield and Mike Tyson. I yeah, think that's get millions of views on YouTube. I mean, yep. they'd have to do the fake ear coming off and all of that right. kind of stuff. <laughs> exactly. and, and they'd have to do a little bit of gentle body sparring with each other and maybe reenact the second fight or whatever. But but I think that would get an audience. You know, certainly now it would. Yeah, you know? right. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is what we've come to now, though. Got a couple yeah. of guys in their fifties, and we're kind of like, yeah, okay. What what else do we have going on? Yeah, I've hey. seen five seconds of him hitting the pad. That's good enough for me. I know, <laughs> I know, but it's incredible. It's incredible that I mean, you know, seeing him busting some shapes is brilliant nostalgia, and it just reminds you of how brilliantly he rotated his hips yeah. and where he got his power from. In fact, I watched him showing the UFC heavyweight Francis Ngannou. Uh, on Twitter, on a video uh, today or yesterday, and you just see how stiff this huge African guy built like a dump truck is compared to to Mike Tyson, even at 53, where, 
you know, you it, it's extraordinary. But you know, even Tyson Fury's dad, um, John Fury, was seriously calling out yeah, Mike we Tyson about that. Yeah, yeah, for yeah. a fight. I mean, but these are pandemic yeah. fantasies. But a lot, but, you know, that that's all they are. I mean, he quit on his stool. I don't want to say about Mike Tyson quitting a stool. He didn't have it anymore. Fifteen yeah. years ago, against right. Kevin McBride. Yeah. But um, it's lovely to see him back. I've really enjoyed the love for people like him during the pandemic. And like, you know, like you guys, it's lovely to, to see and hear you. I think one of the things that the last eight weeks has provided is a chance to stop and look back at our own last 25, 30 years of our lives at a lot of fights that we loved at the time, we covered, we went to. It's really nice. The nostalgia is wonderful to just pause for a moment and look back. And yeah. um, it's one of the good things about this right now, because there's going to be many, many, many brilliant fights to come and we can just wait. And that's, yeah. that's it. You know? Yeah. 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 Sure. Uh, so the last thing uh, that I, we just want to well, another question. I was, <laughs> I was, I was, I was segueing to, for you to end just then. You know, Aaron knew that. We certainly Aaron, could if you if you've had enough of us. One, you've always got one more question, Raskin. That's right. That's right. One, and it's, we are the we are the Columbo of boxing podcasts. <laughs> just one more thing, Gareth. Said. If they do that, just one more question thing, you double your fee. So we just double my fee. <laughs> All right, zero, zero times two. All right, yes. <laughs> two bottles of tequila. Okay. <laughs> I did I did just want to ask you about uh, a bit of the, the next generation of, of British boxing. Uh, we, we've talked about the established stars. Who's, who's coming around the corner? Uh, certainly, I've been very high on Daniel Dubois if we're staying with the heavyweights, and some people are, are high on Joe Joyce. But uh, in addition to those guys, uh, is, is there somebody that maybe the American fans aren't so familiar with yet who's, uh, who, who is sort of seems to have next in, in your view? Well, I mean, you took the words out of my mouth. It must have been while you were kissing me. <laughs> you took the words right out of my mouth. Um, so I, I would say, I mean, it's very hard to look beyond Daniel Dubois uh, as, you know, I really do think he's a nailed down heavyweight champion of the world yeah. at some point. We, we've got to see him in a fight where he's under pressure yet. Um, but he is scary. He's, yeah. he's, you know, for a kid who's 21, He's got such devastating power. He's 14-0. and 0. He's only been a pro three years. I hope they don't rush him. You know, his sister, Caroline Dubois, okay, is a women's lightweight fighter. She is a junior amateur champion. She's just been selected to represent Great Britain as a lightweight at the Olympics, if she can qualify. She's got everything. Mm. Amazing physique, great IQ, tenacious fighter, all the poise and power of a Mayweather. I mean, she's like a smaller version of him. Mm. Um, so the and this, that, believe it or not, they've got a little brother who's fifteen. Caroline's nineteen. Uh, they've got a little brother who's fifteen, who's already six foot one. And the both of Caroline and Daniel are saying he's the best out of all of them. Wow. So, and um, their dad Stan was taking them all to the gym from the age of five, six, seven. I mean. Look no further than Family Dubois, frankly. Um, mm. I'm trying to think of another for you. I think um, I mentioned Terry Harper earlier, mm -hmm. who stacks shelves in a supermarket with her, um, 
for for her manageress fiance um, when she's not fighting. She's a beautiful girl. Used to work in a chip shop, a fish and chip shop in Doncaster. Um, I think Terry Harper's got a lot of talent. She's a super featherweight. Probably will move up to lightweight. Um, oh, I'm trying to think of another guy who is on the cusp. My mind is a little blank right now. That's um, fine. That that opens the door for us to have you back on another time to okay. provide a final answer to uh, to our final question. <laughs> it's a cliff. It's a cliffhanger ending. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Well, I think there's lots of stars here who are stars here who aren't yet stars in America. I think yeah. Callum Smith could do with some time in America. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, Josh Taylor, another Josh one. Josh Taylor's that, breaking I, through here already. Yeah. I think. Yeah, I mean, he's really talented. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he's. I mean, I'm, I'm just thinking of others now. Yeah, we've got. You know, stars come. I tell you, who's probably the other one actually? That, who I forgot? Who I was thinking of? Wanted to bring up. Joshua Boatsy at light heavyweight. I was going to ask you about him. Yeah. Yeah. Is he good? He is. You know all those brilliant boxers from Jamestown, um, Ghana. Yeah. The Ike Cortes, the 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 Azuma Nelsons, the mm-hmm. I'd say Richard Comey before Teofimo Lopez um, kind of banjoed him in two rounds. Right. But um, but that th- that that tribe and i say it with utter respect in terms of tribe the physicality of that group of people that come from that part of the world and that very specific part of the world joshua boatsy is a lovely man perfect build for light heavyweight um barely has to cut weight um really tough changes from a very religious god-fearing man into a killer when he goes into the ring um has looked fantastic so far. Um, bronze medal at the, the was it the Rio Olympics? Yeah, bronze medal at yep. the Rio Olympics where he showed he could really fight. He's just got, I think, everything. And I think he'll be able to take on the very toughest. Um, yeah. And, and that, that light heavyweight division is, is replete with brilliant yeah, Eastern Europeans, is. isn't it? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. who, who seem impermeable to, to yeah. big punches. Yeah. So yeah. I think that's the one I was forgetting who is definitely fast or slow tracking to the very very elite level i'd say all right so no cliffhanger ending after all we got our we got our resolution yes there you go gareth mate thank you so much it's been a joy to talk to you it's been a joy to see you it's been far too long as we discussed earlier it will probably still be far too long until we get to see each other in person but it'll happen one day soon we will see each other ringside i hope i hope so and when we go to the toilet let's hope we get condoms (laughs) if it's meant to be condoms yes or we get mint or we get mints if it's meant to be mints that's right yes words of wisdom that's right or if necessary we can adapt on the fly just just exactly there you go (laughs) the mints lead to the use of the condoms frankly often so i I don't want to be too over prepared that's all you know Great talking to you, Gareth. Thanks, Gareth. Thanks a lot. My absolute pleasure being with you, gents. Absolute pleasure. Cheers. Thanks again to Gareth. Man, we are really on a roll with our guest yep. lately. Uh, Gareth, as always, knocked it out of the park. Always so generous with his time. Um, yeah, so thank you very much again, Gareth. Um, all right, let's 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 go back to last week. Uh, as part of our discussion of Floyd Mayweather's Closer than expected win over Marcus Maidana. We offered up our own list of fights in which the overwhelming favorite won, 
but was pushed to the limit far more than expected. We figured we'd probably missed some, and sure enough, we had quite a few listeners write in with suggestions. A few were borderline in the sense that we weren't necessarily sure we agreed with the notion that one man was the overwhelming favorite going in, but at least one was not. It came from uh, Noah Zaleznik, who wrote to me over Facebook to say that while he was listening to the podcast, he was yelling, Ali Wapner! <laughs> yep. yep, hands up, Eric. We let that one slip through. Yeah, that, that is the all-time example. I mean, they made a best picture film right. loosely based on what an incredible losing underdog effort it was. Ali Wepner is in the conversation for number one on this list, and I don't know how neither of us and apparently none of our listeners besides <laughs> Noah thought of it. I guess you could argue it still wasn't a competitive fight, uh, but... Nevertheless, no, yeah, this is the, the most obvious example of a gross mismatch that turned out to be a special evening. Yep. Oops. <laughs> Oops, indeed. Uh, here's another suggestion we got from uh, our friend Rafe Bartholomew. He uh, mentioned Timothy Bradley, W12, Ruslan Provodnikov. What do you think of that one? Uh, I guess my only hesitation here is a question of just how big a favorite Bradley was, and I don't remember. I just don't remember. I, I guess he must have been. Because he was well-known and he was just coming off that bogus win over Manny Pacquiao. And I don't think Provodnikov was widely known at all, really, um, going into it. It is safe to say that however good anyone thought the fight might have been, nobody thought, surely, that it was as good as it turned out to be. So that's certainly true. So, yeah, that's my only hesitation is how big of a favorite Tim was going into that fight. Yeah, and I I looked it up out of curiosity. And so Bradley was a 5-1 to favorite based on the reporting at the time. So it kind of qualifies, but... Yeah, in my mind, it wasn't such a crazy mismatch. We knew Provodnikov was pretty good and, and tough as hell. Yeah. Uh, Eric Aragon, who has written to us before, uh, offered three possibilities. Uh, Lennox Lewis, Vitaly Klitschko, Miguel Cotto, Ricardo Torres, and one, I, I must confess, I don't quite see, Carl Frampton, Leo Santa Cruz one. Yeah, I, I don't get Frampton, Santa Cruz at all. I have no idea who was even favored in that fight, but neither guy could have been favored by much. Uh, but the others, I think Cotto Torres is a perfect example for this. And uh, Lewis Klitschko is a decent example, although Klitschko wasn't considered a no-hoper going in, but he, he certainly did far exceed expectations. Yeah, yeah. I actually did think about Cotto Torres um, when we were doing our lists, because uh, I think it was really the first time in his pro career that Cotto was in ever kind of trouble at all. Uh, I think I just veered away from it because I still can close my eyes on a dark day and see Miguel on the canvas in trouble, and it just gives me the sads. <laughs> but he got up and won. He it did give you the happies. He did. Well, I remember that bit, but yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, well, uh, Eric Aragon there mentioned uh, Lewis Klitschko, and speaking of heavyweight title fights, uh, another good friend of the podcast, Mark O, suggested Holyfield Foreman. What do you think of that one? Ah, yeah, that's a good call, isn't it? I think it's probably fair to say that Foreman was, even though he'd racked up the wins, and even though he'd stopped um, Jerry Cooney at this point, um, he was still a novelty act, really, I think. I don't think anybody was really contemplating he might actually certainly not win a world title again, and I think he was probably still seen as more of a bit of a self-promoter than a real title challenger. But, you know, at least through seven rounds, and especially in round seven, he did give Evander a pretty tough fight. Yeah, I I decided to look up the odds on this one as well and found some reporting from the time that indicated Holyfield opened about four and a half to one and closed around three to one, which means people were taking a shot on on, on George. But it all feels like even the four and a half to one feels like they were anticipating public money, maybe not smart money, that I think it was perceived as more of a mismatch than those odds indicated. Whatever, Whatever you think in terms of whether it looked like a mismatch on paper or not. 
I think Foreman's competitiveness was uh, what was a surprise. Maybe not. It wasn't shocking, but it was at, at least a mild surprise. This one. Mm. Yeah, I don't think this is like a, a top tier example, but it fits. Yep, indeed. Um, another good friend in the boxing industry who generally chooses not to reveal he's in communication with a podcasting peasant um, offers a couple here. Oscar De La Hoya, Felix Sturm, and a true forgotten semi-classic of the genre, Pernell Whitaker, Diabelis Hurtado. Yeah, those are solid. I, I thought about Oscar and Sturm last week. It, it didn't quite crack my top three because I had seen Sturm before this and knew he was mm-hmm. decent and Oscar was moving to a new weight class. Um, but Whitaker Hurtado is a great example that I didn't think of. Purnell needed to pull a rabbit out of the hat in the 11th round to save his big payday uh, against uh, against Oscar De La Hoya in, in that one. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And yeah, the odds of sweepy being the guy who pulls out a late knockout of <laughs> yeah. course just that just as the drama of it yeah i think that's a good one and i agree with you actually i, I mean i was in vegas i was living there a little bit at the time when, when oscar fought uh sturm and i think there was a bit of a sense that oscar might have bitten off a bit more than he could chew uh because sturm was a good solid middleweight so um yeah uh, but definitely whitaker hatada is a great one yep all right, that will do it for another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney, or as it was Raskin and Mulvaney and Davies. Um, <laughs> before we go, uh, our friend and colleague Brian Custer is launching a new podcast, The Last Stand with Brian Custer, which has a pretty expansive and largely sports-centered reach. Uh, his first guest is retired NFL quarterback Donovan McNabb, who had an excellent career with the Minnesota Vikings for a season, the Washington football team for a season, and before that, some other team whose name I forget, but where I'm sure he remains beloved by that team's <laughs> friendly, forgiving fan base. <laughs> yeah, well, for, uh, first, uh, before I get into uh, that team that he played for for more than one season, I want to say I'm glad you called them the Washington football team. That's uh, ah, yes. that's important. Uh, but yeah, uh, McNabb, uh, I rather liked and supported him uh, when he was a player here. I believe he was the third best quarterback in the NFL for a few years. Years, and that was a claim Eagles fans could never make before McNabb arrived. Uh, but my support of McNabb was not quite universally shared by all Eagles fans. He he might have heard a boo or two, but but I was no. saying boo earns. <laughs> That's right, exactly. Um, Brian's podcast is available on YouTube, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, so do check it out. Uh, as a reminder, Ricky Hatton against Costa Zoo and Joe Calzaghi against Jeff Lacey will be this week's Showtime Boxing Classics, airing at 10 p.m. Eastern and Pacific on Friday. Uh, next week, it's Leo Santa Cruz time as we air his rematch wins over Carl Brampton and Abner Mares. Uh, we will be back next week to discuss that. Till then, thanks for listening safe, be kind, and be well. <laughs>